Rosenbaum here with another fun-filled episode of that 401k podcast. This week's topic, we're going to talk about, you know, end of year 2022 tips for retirement plan sponsors. Um, it's hard to believe, but we are, you know, it's this episode we record on Tuesdays. Usually we've got 25, 26 days left until uh, January 1, 2023. So it's just, it's just really interesting. And, um, you know, that's, you think about your time, you know, when you're a kid, um, everything seems so long, uh, you know, a car, a two hour car ride seems like forever, but I guess in those days before you had an iPad, but you know, now when, now I'm north or 50, you just realize how time goes by. But of course, first things first, uh, that foreign case site.com for further information on all our live events. Um, we have a virtual conference, 26th and 27th of January. Uh, people signing up, $2.23 to be a part of it. Um, great, you know, two-day event, you know, four to five hours each day. Uh, should be a lot of fun. Um, you know, people giving, uh, you know, <laughs> presentations and whatnot. So uh, more and more people are joining us as both plan sponsors, uh, as event sponsors and plan participants. So um, we also got the Oakland events on Friday, April 14th, 2022, 2023, I'm sorry. Uh, we will be in Oakland at the Old Coliseum uh, before the Oakland A's move to Las Vegas. We'll have game tickets that night against the New York Mets. Should be a lot of fun. Uh, May the 3rd, Wednesday, we will be in Motor City, Detroit. Again, that will be a game against the Mets. Um, and then pretty soon we'll finally um, have the dates for uh, Texas and Arlington. And hopefully uh, by January we'll, we'll, we'll find out whether we have an event in the New York State, uh, Tri-State area again or not. So... Uh, Go to that foreigncasesite.com for further information. And, um, you know, Thanksgiving is, you know, done with. Uh, we're in the month of December. Uh, I'm looking forward to a small little vacation at the end of the year in, in Florida. But uh, it was always an interesting time of year when I worked uh, for third-party administration firms. Uh, now, because of the law changes, we don't have to... Um, crank out plan documents on December 31st. Um, we can, you know, wait till the tax due date to do that. And it was really, really hectic at one TPA in particular because we had, um, the head of the TPA had this weird notion that the trust had to be funded. So, you know, it wasn't enough that the plan document had to be signed December 31st. He insisted that, um, the participant that the plan sponsor usually was the defined benefit plan go to with a Schwab office or any brokerage firm and deposit a hundred bucks. And that was a lot of nonsense. Um, and then I, I showed him, you know, the rule on it. So he kind of gave up on that, but I just remember, you know, being, um, you know, December 31st, setting up plain documents, the old days of, uh, getting an EIN on the phone rather than on the internet and that whole kind of a lot of fun. But December 31st, you know, calendar year, we always got these interesting dilemmas. Um, 401k plans, in my opinion, um, I think it's asinine not to be a calendar year. There are plans out there, I, I'm still sure of it, that have fiscal years. Um, 
I, I just, I, I don't like it. Uh, and the reason I don't like it <laughs> is because 402G. Um, 402G is a participant level uh, limit. And participants are cash taxpayers and can only have a, like a 1231 fiscal year. You know, you and I can't elect the 630 plan year ends for ourselves, for our tax purposes. Um, that's why I think corporations, uh, you know, it's silly to have any off calendar year plan. I understand they want to, you know, have that for their fiscal year. And it's just a, a complete, you know, set of nonsense. So this is, again, for plans that are, you know, 1231, the 99.9% .9 of plans out there. And, you know, tips and issues, um, the uh, special deferral election of bonuses, as well as bonuses in and of themselves. Um, bonuses are, uh, how do we say this nicely? Bonuses are, are, are a stickler for me. Probably because in the 12 years I worked for other people, the only time I ever got a bonus was I started out in September 1998 working for Harvey Berman, the law firm that was affiliated with Mobius Tech, which eventually became Seabiz Retirement Services, Inc. The only, time I ever, the only time I ever got a bonus was then. So I was working for Harvey about three, four months. I got 300 bucks, and uh, um, I was happy. I was ecstatic. <laughs> And uh, lo and behold, I never got a, um, I never got a, another bonus. So I worked for TPAs. I worked for you know law firms. I never got a bonus, and that is a bone of contention. You know, you hear people. I, I, I remember as a kid, my father was a had an electrical contracting business, and he had a partner. And I think one year, I want to say it was ninety one. And I think if you look at the schedule, 1991 was a very, very tough year. And that year, my my father's partner didn't give the guys bonuses. And the guys didn't show up for the holiday party. And that was a big to-do. And, uh, you know, I always hated the holiday parties. Even, I think one of the, the, the I think one of the greatest things uh, working my own is I don't have a holiday party for myself. I hate holiday parties. I, and I think the reason I hate holiday parties is because I, you know, you get jaded and you realize the holiday party is just, uh, you know, the reason I'm not getting a bonus. So it's like, instead of the holiday party, can I get the hundred bucks or hundred bucks ahead um, instead? So uh, when I was a kid, I was like, you know, 17, 18 years old and my father's you know, company had a Christmas party, whatever, I'd go because it was fun to go out and eat some new foods. You know, when you're an adult and, um, you know, the holiday party is just, again, like I said, that holiday party meant I got, I got, you know, in my mind meant I got no bonus. I got this crappy party. And I think the crappier parties honestly were at the companies where I couldn't invite my wife. Uh, nobody could invite their spouses. And I think that's cheesy. So, you know, it, it's it's kind of funny. I'm kind of like Larry David with that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, the Meyer Swazi party, they would not let you invite your, um, you know, they would not let you invite your spouse. So, I mean, I don't, I don't want to spend three hours with the people I already don't like. <laughs> so that's just me and my jaded view. But I, I assume people do get bonuses out there. I didn't. But, uh, you know, the bonus election, that's a kind of an interesting topic. 
Um, if there's a substantial part, you know, people do get big bonuses. I, I hear law firms do pay out, you know, ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollar bonuses, maybe more. Uh, it'd be an issue, you know, for a plan sponsor to consider adding a special deferral bonus election, allow people to max out on the deferrals. Uh, One-time election, uh, very, very few plans offer it. I like it. Uh, and then, of course, the problem is, is that um, if you don't have that special election and um, you don't allow the participants the opportunity to defer, uh, you know, all or a small portion of their defer uh, of their you know bonuses of deferral, you might have a missed deferral opportunity. So I think that that's something that plan sponsors really need to, need to tidy up. Uh, a lot of firms, you know, put in that bonus deferral election form just to, as, a, as a safety valve to, uh, you know, people don't defer, that they don't have a missed deferral opportunity. Of course, excluding bonuses from the definition of compensation could be problematic uh, on a discrimination, you know, purpose uh, if it's held to uh, discriminate against um, non-highlies, but usually, you know, the big bonuses go to the HC, so that typically doesn't happen and have an issue. Obviously, another subject area, uh, December 31st means we're going to get to a new plan year, and eventually the TPA is going to ask for that uh, census form, and... Um, you know, it's something that the plan sponsors should get ready. Uh, just have that idea in the back of their head that, you know, this is something they need to complete. And the questionnaire is something they need to be accurate about. Uh, you know, if you have a crappy TPA, the TPA may not, uh, may test on, you know, incorrect information. So, for example, I talk about that law firm uh, who's, you know, one of the partners, named partners, um, you know, the wife and daughter worked there. They didn't toggle them as a key employee. And the TPA had a administrator who had 20 years of experience, but 20 bad years. And she said the plan wasn't top heavy. So, you know, those are the issues and, and whatnot. So it's, you know, affiliate service, control group, all these type of questions. These are, you know, you know, it, as they say, garbage in, garbage out. If a plan sponsor doesn't have correct information, then the compliance test is going to be all screwy. Next, obviously, we, we talk about it all the time, but um, review of ERISA bond and fiduciary liability insurance. You know, they tell people all the time, check your air filter when every season starts and check your fire, carbon monoxide, alarms, uh Every six months to avoid greater harm later. I had problems one time with the carbon monoxide it was an alarm. And I, I think after eight or nine years, it was going crazy. And when you hear that beep, you're afraid <laughs> that there's a invisible poison out there, which is what carbon monoxide is. And I remember having to call the firefighters and they fixed it. You know, they, they determined that there was no carbon monoxide in the house and it was just a matter of the alarm. But when it comes to a retirement plan sponsor, um, you know, they need to make sure that they're properly insured. Um, obviously, with an ERISA bond, uh, that's required of any ERISA-covered plan. And it's up to the plan sponsor to make sure that they have enough uh, bonding uh, to protect plan assets. Plan grows, then the bond coverage has to grow as well. Obviously, fiduciary liability insurance 
that is optional. And of course, um, you know, years ago, working for a union law firm, represented a union that had a retirement plan. There was a class action case. Um, uh, some really great wrestle litigators represented the plan sponsor. It was a class action. The union prevailed in the case uh, and had a fiduciary liability insurance policy, $100,000 deductible. So they were only on the hook for $100,000 in legal fees, not the million bucks. And, that, and again, I always say, you know, you, you get sued, you win the case, great, but, you know, you still, you know, had to go through the whole process, and that, that's not fun. And another thing to look at is obviously look to compare the health to, compare the plan to the health of the company. Talking about my father's business, um, my father was a terrible businessman um, in the sense that, you know, he had a partner, he had a very, very good contract with the partner. And just my father didn't demand the money that he was supposed to get. And his explanation was, well, you know, uh, my my partner set up a defined benefit plan for me. Well, yeah, he signed the, He set up the defined benefit plan for you and for the other employees. It was a union shop, so they didn't have to cover the union employees. The problem with the defined benefit plan, and his partner was, a, was another idiot. Um, he didn't uh, understand... Um, you know, uh, defined benefit plans, the need to actually have equity investments. So my mother used to tell me, this is before I ever was an arrest attorney, and was like, oh, you know, it's very stable. It's it's in, it's in you know, it's in CDs. And I, 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 I couldn't spell 401k back in those days. I didn't even know what a 401k plan was in those days, you know, 30 some odd years ago when I, when I was just starting college. And it just didn't make sense to me then. I mean, what do you mean? I knew a thing or two about the stock market. It just didn't make any sense. Needless to say, that plan was completely underfunded. Um, they never consulted with me when I did become an ERISA attorney. Um, and I believe that there was a distress termination at one point. Um, and again, with a DB plan, my father was way older than his partner. It just didn't make any sense. As a, as a plan, they were probably better off with a 401k plan. My father did get his pension. So, um, you know, he could get a lump sum because of the uh, the underfunding. And, um, you know, that was one problem. But, you know, with a plan out there, the benefit plan doesn't work so much for people. Some companies, they can't afford the safe harbor anymore. They can't afford a stated match. They can't afford contributions. They're going to have to cut back. It's really important to look at the company and see what works and what doesn't. So, you know, talking about DB plans, worked on one with a medical practice. You put in all their money with them with Bernie Madoff. That was a huge problem. But the, the under, uh, forget Madoff for a second. That was a great plan when you only had like three or four doctors and two or three staff. But when the size of the company doubled or tripled, it just became too expensive. And we eventually got the money back from the Madoff trustee. And uh, was it Irving Picard was the guy's name or whatnot? But uh, the plan was kind of close to being made whole. And we, we killed off the DB plan and put in a 401k plan instead. So it's really important to make sure that the needs of the plan, the needs of the company are still met by the plan design. So, you know, company has flush with money, a new comparability plan design. Maybe we do that. Maybe we do safe harbor. 
Um, you know, again, it's, it's something that, you know, again, has to fit uh, with what works and within the budget of the company. There's nothing worse than a company suffering and having to make a required contribution that doesn't really have to be required. Obviously, plan expenses have to be reviewed. Um, yeah, most plan sponsors, medium-sized, small businesses just don't do it. Uh, I always joke uh, people sometimes treat their fee disclosure as they do privacy statements. And, um, you know, the, the fee disclosure, I, I worked uh, for, for half my, most of my career still. I think the first 14 years, there was no fee disclosure rules. We've only had it now for the last 10 years. And uh, think about the old days, you know, when you're a kid, you know, parents always tell you about the old days. And I, I always wanted to avoid that being as a parent. I would just joke sometimes, you know, about how I would have killed for an iPad instead as a kid, uh, you know, the uh, trip, uh, the car ride to Canada, which was like 10 hours or whatever it was after a couple stops. I, I had a, uh, not a portable TV, but a, a TV radio. So you could hear the TV signals uh, you could hear the audio from the TV. You couldn't see the video, and so it was a big deal to me. Like you know, I, I caught a, a rerun of Different Strokes sometime, some somewhere in Rochester, and that was a big joy. But um, it's important uh, that you know plan sponsors realize they have fiduciary responsibility, paying reasonable plan expenses. They are lucky in the fact that they can do their jobs now. Prior to 2012, with the fee disclosure regulations. Plan sponsor had absolutely no idea what the TPA was charging. If the TPA was pocketing the rev share, plan sponsor had no idea. And that abuse went on and on and on. Same thing with the insurance company. Problem with the fee disclosure regulations, in my opinion, is um, I think that the fee disclosures, I think the Department of Labor, in my opinion, always missed the boat. I think there should have been a model disclosure form uh, that had some consistency, weren't written by, weren't written in ease and be easy for plan sponsors to understand. Because on the participant disclosures, when you still have 40% of participants still thinking they pay nothing for uh, plan administration, then obviously something's not working here. But um, obviously, plan sponsor needs to determine whether the fees being charged to the plan are reasonable or not. And obviously, the only way to do that is to, to benchmark against other providers and you know make sure that the services are, are similar. Um, you know, obviously, somebody who offers more services are going to charge more than somebody who just gives a bare bones service. Last but not least, obviously, um, reviewing plan providers. Um, one of my favorite politicians of all time was Ed Koch. Uh, he was the mayor when I grew up as a kid. Uh, he was the mayor from the time I was five to the time I was 17 or whatever it was. And he was always great because he would, you know, tell people, how am I doing? How am I doing? Um, you know, uh, he was always trying to get a barometer and towards the end, trying to run for that fourth term. Obviously, in New York City, didn't think he was doing such a great job anymore. But... Uh, that's how it happens with any politician who's been in office for like 10 or more years. But anyway, um, a plan sponsor has to do that in terms of trying to find out how their plan providers are doing. And again, um, I always talk about you know dealing with plan sponsors and uh, fixing problems because they never bother to look at what their TPA was doing. And you know we're talking about people being sued for millions of dollars. Right now I have a Plan sponsor on a DB plan, defined benefit plan, where 
you know, we're missing 5,500s. We're missing vowels. We might have a cutback in benefits. It's an epic disaster. And it's an epic disaster because the actuary, actuarial firm, is, is an epic disaster. So how does the plan sponsor avoid that? Review the plan providers. Hire somebody to see if somebody's doing their job. Make sure the 5500s are done. Make sure all the notices are done. Make sure that the compliance testing was done correctly. I mean, these are the things that, you know, you can do to avoid trouble later down the line because, you know, like I always say, these changes happen. Um, uh, these errors happen, and they're only discovered in two situations. If they're not discovered early. They're discovered on a plan audit. They're discovered when there's a TPA change. And believe you me, uh, it's more costly to fix a problem years later. Obviously, on a you know, just like on an ADP ACP refund, but well, on an ADP refund, um, you know, there's some corrections. If you wait a couple of years, you, you can't make it, and the you know, you're resolved to making a QNAC. And depending on the era, QNAC can be prohibitively expensive and a prohibitively financial disaster for the plant sponsor. So. Um, that uh, that does it for a very, very short episode of that 401k podcast. And again, go to that 401k site.com for further information on all our live events, virtual and in person. And uh, we hope you join us for another episode. Take care. Bye.